From the Amazon to the Himalayas, God is accomplishing his mission. Welcome to Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. Stories and conversations with the global church and for the global church about the mission of God in the world. And now here is your host, Paul Aiken. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken. Our guest today is Paul Salem. Paul and his family live and serve in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Paul and I have known each other for over a decade, and I'm really excited to have this conversation today. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Paul. It's great to be here. Awesome. Why don't we start by just letting you share your salvation testimony with us. Tell us how God saved you. Sure. Yeah. You know, I was born in a Christian family, so this is not going to be a, maybe an unfamiliar story for many. My parents served overseas with the International Mission Board. I was born in Taiwan. And so there was, I don't have any memory of not knowing about Jesus or the church. As for so many, you know, I don't have that new moment. But when I was in grade school, I did struggle with, we were in a, in a country where there were people from different faiths all around me and I was struggled with the fact that my parents are telling me one thing about who God is. And, you know, my friends down the road or their parents are telling them different things about who God is and how do we work this out and wrestled with that for a little bit. My parents were very kind and gracious and patient with me giving guidance, but, but also working hard to let me make my own decision. And through that really experienced through some personal struggles, praying to God and really sensing God's presence. But then there's a sort of a second part to the story. So I was baptized, you know, made a decision when I was 10. But when I was in college, I would say I went into sort of a spiritual cruise control. And, you know, I went to church, but just more out of obligation. I went to the church that was least boring to me. And, you know, I wasn't walking with Christ in any real way. And I was about two years into my college experience and really felt like, man, the direction I was going, the major I was in, the girlfriend that I was dating at the time, I mean, just was not right. And I began to pray and to read scripture and to journal and it was started on a Friday night. I was working on a brochure for a graphic design project. And by the end of that weekend, I really sensed the Lord calling me back to himself and really with some new life direction. And that began first with just a desire to know Jesus and to read the gospels. I began reading, like ducking between classes and like reading five minutes of, you know, the gospel of Matthew and not to know about God, but to to know him. And that was a, a change for me. And that developed into a calling to serve in ministry, which developed over time into a calling to serve overseas. Awesome. Thanks for, for sharing that with us. You know, you mentioned that you grew up overseas living internationally, and now for over a decade, you and your family have lived in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Can you tell us that story? How did you get from that college student who really grew in your faith to now living and serving overseas? 
Yeah, I struggled with it actually for a little while because I did grow up overseas. It sounds may sound weird to a lot of people, but that sounded like the easy path to go back overseas. That was in some ways my comfort zone. And I really didn't, you know, the high school me overseas just was wanted to have fun. And I did not think I was mature enough to go back overseas to serve. And God had to show me some ways in which he was working on me. Not that I'm mature enough at this point, but he had given me a, a deeper love for people and a desire to see them know Christ. And so those were changes that he revealed through like a short-term trip. I went on with, with some college friends and, and then went to seminary. And through that time there, really began to hone in on where overseas that would be. And we started out in Indonesia and served there, had a great experience there. But where we were was a very provincial area. And although we had a really great experience for my wife and I, it did not seem like that was the best fit for how God had developed us and and given us skills. And so we shifted to Malaysia about 10 years ago, roughly, and urban context. And so that has been a much better fit in terms of how God has wired my wife and I. So we mentioned that you live in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Maybe some of the people who are listening are, are maybe not so familiar with that. Maybe they've seen the movie Entrapment or something like that, that maybe has some sort of scenery or something like that from Kuala Lumpur, kind of an interesting name, but maybe tell us some about the country, the city, what makes this part of the world unique? If you reference Kuala Lumpur by the movie Entrapment, it means you're probably our age or a little older, (laughs) which I find typically, we call it KL. That's what locals call it. In KL, we call it the, the most strategic city you've never heard of. It's a robust, flourishing global city, you know, tallest twin towers in the world. And yet for many Americans, they've never heard of it. Or if they have, it's been pretty minor in what they know about it. But it does, it's a big city of roughly 9 million people, a city that is just teeming with people and all kinds of activity multinational corporations, three airports, you know, all the things a big city has. It's by no means the largest city, but it's a city with a pretty big influential footprint in the region and even on the world stage. And so one of the things that drew me to urban work was, and you didn't ask this directly, but I'm, you know, this is free of charge. When we were in provincial area, you know, missions for a long time had a, an unreached people group focus. And, and there was a lot that, of good that came with that, which was to identify ethnic groups around the world who had not had access to the gospel for one reason or another. Sometimes just there were cultural boundaries that seemed like the gospel was not crossing from one culture to the next. And, and th- those were really valid, and I think we needed and need to go to those places, make sure that the gospel witness is everywhere among all people. But one of the things I discovered was in the big cities of Indonesia is people would go live in those cities, but then go out of the city into a village because they were looking for a particular people group. 
And then some of the big cities of Indonesia, one third of Jakarta, for example, people are from mixed marriages. And so the ethnic approach to missions breaks down when you get to a city like Jakarta. And yet there's whatever Jakarta has, 30 million people in Jakarta, and they need the gospel. I mean, that's an unreached population segment, every bit as much as the unreached people group in a rural location. And so recognizing that, and then I was slow to realize that a lot of folks really don't like the city and are wired for engaging in rural areas. And I uh, went to high school in Manila, Philippines. My wife went to high school in Bangkok. We're okay with traffic and dense populations and just sort of the grittiness that a city brings. And so we began at that point to really look at cities for us to serve in. And we've loved it. I want to switch gears to the state of the church. Obviously, we think about Asia, Southeast Asia. We think about different worldviews and, and these kinds of things. But I want to talk about the evangelical church. Is there an evangelical church there in KL? And can you tell us what that looks like? Short answer is yes, there is. To give a little bit of a, a makeup of the city itself, Malaysia is a very complex country, ethnically, religiously, linguistically. It's a composite of people that have origins from China, origins from India, origins from Southeast Asia. And so we have three major, I would say, ethnic groups. It's probably the easiest term to use, Chinese, Malay, and Indian it's about 40% Chinese, about 40% Malay, about 10% Indian. And then we have an unknown number of others that are refugees, professionals, international students, migrant workers from a whole dozens of different countries. And so that's the messier part there. In Malaysia, it has been for those that are born Muslim, they don't have the same freedoms to be able to choose their religious affiliation or, or faith. And so they're required to remain Muslim, marry Muslim. That's been governmentally dictated. For Chinese and Indian populations, they have a fair amount of religious freedom. And so there is an evangelical church. It's about 1.6% of the population. And it is primarily Chinese and Indian not among the Malay population. So, you know, what I tell people is if you go out and share the gospel in Kuala Lumpur, you have a 98% chance of sharing the gospel with someone who's not a Christian, and no matter what their background is. And in that 1.6%, you have all of the variety that you might, you know, have here in the States, which is everything ranging from cold, dispassionate, churches that are maybe feel pretty dead and to very liturgical churches, very charismatic churches, churches that teach prosperity gospel on, on a regular basis, and some really wonderful Christ-centered churches. It's helpful just to kind of have an idea of kind of what the church looks like there in the city and kind of the makeup. So kind of related to that, the next question I want to ask is, you know, if you look at any kind of official stats or data, 
you know, the official religion for Malaysia is listed as Islam. But I know that's not always accurate. And so would love for you to talk about just some of the challenges maybe of reaching people in a quote unquote Muslim Islamic context, but then also that are at the same time in this kind of urban city mindset as well. What are some of the challenges with reaching those people with the good news? Yeah, it's a complicated question and answer, I guess. In one sense, people are people and we all have the things that shield us, distract us from knowing God, our own sinfulness, our own idolatries. But then when you get to a place like Malaysia, yes, there is this kind of formal Islamic reality. And for some, that's a very much heartfelt choice. They're very devout practitioners of their faith. For others, it is imposed on them and they really don't really follow much. I can remember a few years ago, I was in a Starbucks and it was during Ramadan. And Ramadan is the fasting month. And so for those who are Muslims, they're not allowed to eat or drink anything during the daylight hours. And in Malaysia, for those that are Muslim, you know, it's on their identity card that they are Muslim. They're not allowed to go to a restaurant and purchase food or drink or whatever. And people can check on them. In today's uncertain world, there's an urgent need for competent biblical counselors who can offer hope and help through the whole counsel of God's Word. Are you called to be a counselor? A degree in biblical counseling from Southern Seminary is designed to equip students with a biblical foundation and professional skills needed to help others navigate the struggles and challenges of everyday life. This degree prepares graduates to minister to individuals, couples, and families in church, nonprofit, or missional settings. To learn more about Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, and doctoral degrees available through the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary, go to sbts.edu bgs or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click the link to the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. There you'll learn how podcast listeners can save $40 when applying for classes. That web address again is sbts.edu bgs. So I was in Starbucks, I was working, I think I was writing a sermon, and I saw a guy come in and he ordered his whatever, frappuccino, whatever they he ordered. I'm sure it was a sentence long. And the woman behind the counter said, I'm sorry to ask this, but are you a Muslim? And he said, yes. And she's like, well, then I can't serve you. Because for Starbucks, they would get fined as well if they serve someone who's Muslim. And you could just see him, you know, he just slumped over and kind of walked out sort of like Charlie Brown on a bad day, you know, like he doesn't have a choice in the matter. And for him, it wasn't a personal choice. It was imposed on him. So I think you have that full spectrum and that makes it challenging. In some ways, we were in another location before we moved to Malaysia where Islam was a little bit more more robust people. That was what people were. And when you have faith conversations, it was very clear that, you know, I'm an adherent, I follow Christ and they follow Islam. And we had a very, very honest conversation about those things. And there was something easy about that. In KL, you hop into a taxi, you might see on the dashboard, you might see a, uh, a Hindu 
idol. You might see a crescent moon. You might see a cross. You might see some kind of Buddhist prayer beads. Like you'll see the whole mix. And for that taxi driver, he's just, he's trying anything and everything to make sure he gets favor from God, whatever that may mean. And then you have just urban secularists, right? That probably are more consumed by making money and career and what's on Netflix than anything else. And so it does become a challenge. You know, we have temples and mosques throughout the city, but I would say the bigger object of worship in the city is, is the shopping mall. We have over 300 shopping malls throughout the city. And I think that draws more worshipers than necessarily the formal religions. And so I think for us, what that means in ministering is finding some different tools for sharing the gospel that address those worldview backgrounds. And so sometimes when we think, oh, you're a Buddhist or you're a Hindu, we have a very set kind of tact to take with that. And we also need to recognize that person may say they're Buddhist, but in reality, they live a secular life. And so we use something different in sharing the gospel with them. Oh, that's, yeah, that's helpful to be able to nuance some of that and explain some of that. You know, Paul, you mentioned you, you guys have been there for a while now. There's a lot of people back in the States, I think, that are praying for you, praying for your work. And so obviously with the challenges there, what can you tell us that's encouraging in terms of maybe looking back over the last couple of years, what are some of the things that you guys have seen the Lord do there in the city? Yeah, you know, the last couple of years are a little bit harder to gauge because of the pandemic. And it's been hard, if we're being really honest, it's been hard on the church in Malaysia. Out of the last 16 months, they've been in lockdown for most of it. They had a brief window last year where they could meet together a little bit in small numbers. It's been hard in that regard. The encouraging silver lining in that has been to see how faithful Christians have been in the midst of that difficulty. You know, one of the churches we helped start a few years back, you know, they've been getting online and praying for each other in the evenings, you know, like some things that, that I haven't as readily seen where I'm at in the States from Christians. You know, if we can't meet together, then I'll just watch football or something. I know that's not true of all American Christians. So please don't get angry with me. So there's that. The other thing that, that's been cool to see is I mentioned briefly that there are refugees from many parts of the world that come to Malaysia. And there have been refugees coming from parts of the world where there's just really restricted access to the gospel. And even during the pandemic, we've seen a church form among one of those groups from a very restricted area of the world. So that's been really cool to see and to see how God is working behind the scenes. I'm also praying, and this is like, a, I don't know, expected good thing. It hasn't come to fruition yet, but I'm praying that this pandemic has brought a level of humility on all people and that there's maybe a, a readiness to know God and to 
to humble ourselves before him. I think for both the Christian and for the, the non-Christian, I'm praying for an open window for, for sharing the gospel and that people might be more ready to hear the good news as a result. The other thing that's been fun to see is we've started a network, a church planting network. Our goal is to to see healthy churches planted all over the city in all the different languages of the city. And that network has continued to grow and continued to train church planters. And so that's been exciting to see that there's a lot of ownership of that entity and that people are still desiring to advance the gospel there. That's good. You know, the focus of this podcast season is really a focus on cities. And so I've been interviewing people who live and serve in different cities around the world. And we even have probably some of our listeners or people who minister in the context of cities. And so thinking back over the last decade plus for you and the experience that you have, I would love to hear your opinion. What do you think it takes to do faithful ministry in the context of cities like Kuala Lumpur? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question and one that I would love to take days to answer. And I realize you would hate that. (laughs) My brief answer, I think my starting point would be to say to be in the city and learn to love the city and the people of the city. And if you don't have that, then the rest of it's going to be pretty troubled. And I think there was a stage for a long time where we thought, you know, we would come in from our comfy suburbs and do a, you know, one Saturday a month kind of take God into the city and see incredible things happen. And I just don't think we're going to see much change that way. And so the best practitioners I've observed over the years have been those that have lived deeply in their city. And, and I think to do that, you have to live deeply in your own neighborhood and say, you know, we talk about love your neighbor as yourself. And sometimes we make that so generic. Jesus meant everyone's your neighbor. But when we say that, I think we can sort of lose that sense, the necessity to love our actual neighbors and to be intentional in those relationships and to love people who in our neighborhood who aren't as readily loved by others. And I think cities are just full of brokenness Uh, So that's, I think, on one level is just to love your city well. And to love your city, you need to know your city. And so to understand how people think and operate. Tim Keller, you know, when he went to plant a church in, in New York City, one of the things he began to do was, what are New Yorkers reading? What are they listening to? Who are the influences in their life? And then he became familiar with those things so that then he could proclaim the gospel in a way that they begin to to grasp and understand. And I think we need to do that in all of our cities. KL is not New York. And so figuring out what does that look like in, in KL? I think another element of this is to think through, to challenge in large part missions has gone away of, you know, like house church planting and even sort of a, an emphasis on rapid movement and we just haven't seen that kind of thing happen in cities as readily. And so where it has happened, it's happened through institutional churches. 
I think embracing the church in the city and working with the church to reach the city and to most cities, there are exceptions around the world, but most cities have some kind of institutional church presence. And so how can we come alongside the bride of Christ and work to reach the city with the church? That's great. That's a helpful response. And I think you're able to bring many years of wisdom and probably trial and error to that response. So that's, it's good to hear. More error than trial. <laughs> I'm sure that the Lord is, is faithful and he's patient and he's good. You know, Paul, you have a, a doctorate. Obviously, I serve at a theological institution. I'm passionate about theological training, preparation. So someone who's doing the work that you're doing internationally in the context of the city, I would love to hear you share, first off, why did you pursue a doctorate degree? And then how has that degree helped you in your work there in the city? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think, you know, I should say first off, I don't think it's for everyone. I think you should only do a doctorate if you are pretty nerdy and you love that kind of research and study. So again, it's not for everyone. So I'm, I'm kind of nerdy. And so I have a natural inclination anyway. And one of the things I discovered in our first term overseas was I'm not naturally gifted as the frontline worker type person. I can't just walk into a market and strike up conversations beautifully. I still make the effort to do so, but that's not been my strength. My wife is much better at that than I am. My gifts are more in teaching. And so coming into a place with a seminary, there was a good opportunity for me to teach through the seminary. And I think the other advantage that that's had is in a place like a global city where you have people that are highly trained, highly educated, very competent in a lot of different categories. There is a role for the ministry expert. There's probably a better term than that term, but I'm going to use that term. And to say that we need pastors that are well-trained and equipped to speak. The other thing that's been beneficial is in some ways that gives you a guaranteed several years to pour into others. And so the church in Malaysia, they've been, they've had some strengths in, in who they reach, but then there are large segments of the population they haven't been reaching and haven't had an interest in reaching. And as a professor, I can kind of push at that in the classroom And so I had one student several years later come to me and he said, you know, when you started talking about this, you know, I just thought you were nuts. And then now as a pastor, he's like, we're trying to now reach that that group that I thought you were nuts to talk about. And so there's some, some advantage there. I had another student in just talking about the poor in the city. And it had never occurred to me, I think, coming out of an American want to help the poor, just kind of naturally. This pastor was from a Chinese background. He'd been pastor a long time. And he said, you know, 
all I did was just point out passages in scripture that talk about poverty and talk about the different reasons for poverty. And he said, you know, I always thought the poor were poor because they deserved to be poor. And, you know, he came out of a, a Buddhist background where that was part of his previous worldview and one that hadn't been unrooted until he took one of my classes. And so just that opportunity to help work, I don't know, I think that just the discipleship process in a place takes lots of unrooting of default assumptions and replacing them with biblical assumptions. And so that being able to be a part of that process has been incredible experience. This next question, Paul, is more personal. It's a question that I ask everybody that I interview. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts. The question is, day after day, week after week, and month after month, what keeps you there in that place? And why are you giving your life to this work? At the root of it, I think everyone has to ask themselves, is Christ worth it? And sometimes it's easier to ask for yourself than, is it worth it for my kids? Is it worth it for, you know, if you're sharing the gospel with someone who will then be persecuted if they believe, is it worth it for them, you know? So I think having a clear sense of calling has been really helpful for me. And to, to just know that it is Christ who transforms hearts and there is, there is no other way for that to happen. So I think those two things, the a little bit less spiritual answer is <laughs> have a genuine love for people, which is also biblical. But I think if you really love people, then you're going to be less focused on whether you have all of the things that your friends have back home or whether your kids are able to do all the activities they're able to do back home. I mean, our kids can't wait to get back because that's been been home for them. And, and I think, yeah, at the risk of just kind of wandering too far off in this answer, I think a love for Christ, a love for people are the kind of the two basic elements. And if you don't have those things, then yeah, it's going to be a hard journey. Paul, thank you for your time. This next question is the last question I have for you. What is one thing you want everyone listening to this podcast to know or to do? In self-interest, I would say to, if you listen to this podcast, pray for the people of KL and pray for those that have been resistant to, to the gospel, resistant to even kind of seeking who God is and Pray for those Christians that are there as they boldly share the gospel, that they would find fertile soil. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Paul today. Please pray for him, his work in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast and be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. 
please visit our website, www.sbts.edu bgs, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.